Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes. This week we will be talking about blue-green and revisiting multicolor, which I covered at the very beginning of the format, but unlike most archetypes that I've talked about, my opinions on how to approach this have certainly developed uh, over the course of the format. In the very beginning, it was correct to take a much less conservative approach to managing your life total, let's say. I would say the aggressive decks were less developed, and it was okay to spend a little more time to get established, which feels much less safe in the format at the moment in a way that has uh, really shifted my prioritization for having, let's say, sleek, consistent decks. For anyone who uh, hasn't isn't aware or needs a refresher, at the beginning of the format, I suggested that the correct way to approach things was just to expect that you would play the most powerful cards you had access to and that you would want to play a lot of colors, uh, or position yourself to potentially play a lot of colors to maximize the number of powerful spells that you had access to. But as the formats developed and as aggressive decks have become more successful and basically the norm, I think that there's a lot of punishment to spending a lot of time establishing your colors and making sure you can cast your spells. And we see that play out in really low win rates for cards like Glittering Frost. That means that you need to really prioritize impact on the battlefield at all stages of the game, uh, making plays in the first couple turns as we see play out with really low win rates when you spend your first couple of turns, for example, foretelling and casting Behold the Multiverse. You really want to make sure that you're doing something to impact the battlefield, ideally both the second and third turns, but at least one of those turns. And that need to make sure that you're not falling behind and that you're uh, establishing a board presence definitely cuts into your ability to get really greedy, at least really consistently, with playing a lot of colors. And it looks like, in general, the most successful multicolor decks either have a really robust fixing in the lands so that they don't have to play as many spells to fix their mana that drop them further behind, or uh, don't play five colors or play only light splashes or have some kind of plan to manage their position against aggressive decks, leaning really heavily on uh, cheap spells like um, Frostbite and even Broken Wings that can slow down aggressive opponents and stuff like that. And then potentially playing a little bit less top end than you might have expected at the beginning of the format. So what that means in terms of the big picture is I no longer would advocate starting by just taking the most powerful cards in every pack. Now I think I need one of a few really specific cards to make me expect that I'm going to play more than maybe two colors in a splash. For the most part, the cards that are going to make me do that are uh, cards that really strongly point to it while having a really high win rate. So that would be like Spirit of the Elder Guard and... 
Path to the World Tree are the two biggest pushes to playing more than two colors. Spirit of the Elder Guard uh, is the 0-4 uh, bear thing that searches for a snow land and puts it in your hand, and then has power for the number of snow permits you have for four mana. That card has a fantastic win rate, has always impressed me throughout the format. It's very strong if you have enough snow lands in your deck to make it reasonably powerful. And because that card wants you to have a lot of snow lands and fixes your mana in a way that doesn't leave you falling further behind on the board because it's like a good creature by itself, it's really the perfect thing to let you get a little greedier with your colors and also to incentivize you to prioritize Snowlands more highly in the draft. And because you can't control what color Snowlands you're seeing, it's a lot easier to play and prioritize a lot of them when you're having reasons to put multiple colors of lands in your deck. However you slice it, it pushes you toward playing more than two colors. It's better in multicolor decks. Path the World Tree is the same situation, except it really, you know, you have to have access to all the colors to make it work. But again, it's a card with a super impressive win rate, really strong, really worth drafting early and building around. And then the other slightly less hard push in that direction, but kind of similar impact card is Avalanche Caller, which has a win rate between Spirit of the Elder Guard and Path the World Tree. All of them have really high win win rates. Avalanche Caller just asks you to have Snowlands. It doesn't matter if there are lots of different colors or not, and because it doesn't really need that many Snowlands to work, I would say it's a pretty weak push in this direction. But it's a card that if I take early, I'm pretty open to splashing, especially because it's a blue card, and we now know that blue is a relatively unsuccessful color in the format, so you might want to just splash it in a deck that's not relying on having like a blue base because there are so few strong blue cards. So if you just spend some of your higher picks or lower picks or really whenever you can get it picks on taking especially dual lands that will allow you to play Avalanche Colors, one of three colors, you might have uh, more success in that you'll have less reliance on playing weaker blue cards in order to allow yourself to play stronger blue cards. This is to say that in general, my default approach to the format uh, is to expect that I'm going to be two or two in a splash colors and to try to maximize the extent to which those colors can be uh, green, white, and red. At this point in the format, it's very clear that uh, blue and black are much weaker and or shallower colors and the decks that play a lot of them are less successful. The nature of this podcast is to focus on all of the color combinations equally. The nature of draft isn't necessarily that you will want to focus on all of the color combinations equally while you're drafting. And there are certainly some that we now know fairly concretely perform better than others. And I definitely think it's worth biasing toward getting into a color that's good at playing an aggressive game is basically what's happening in terms of what I'm looking, where I'm looking to establish myself and what I'm looking to do by default. But again, there are these kind of powerful uncommons and, you know, a few particularly exceptional uh, rares and mythic rares like Coma, uh, obviously the um, seven mana blue and green creature that wins the game immediately, that will cause a divergence from the default plan. And if you have these powerful cards, I certainly think that, you know, the multicolored X, the snow decks can work. I just 
have moved away from them being the default expectation in the format. That's kind of the big, the big picture overhaul from that uh, first episode about my expected approach to the format before having really played it. And where I'm at now at kind of the end of the format instead of the beginning of the format. The other class of cards that's going to make me look to be more than two colors is if I first pick any really powerful black card, especially a gold black card that doesn't have uh, two black mana symbols in its casting cost. Or that does but doesn't mean it, like Poison the Cup, which can be played for a single black even though it technically has a casting cost of one black black. Poison the Cup and Binding the Old Gods are uh, two really good examples of black cards where I'm not necessarily going to expect that I'm going to be a two-color black deck if I've drafted them. I'm going to suspect that there's a good chance that I'm going to be most likely green and another color with a black splash to play that card. The other color, that could mean uh, green-white or green-blue, most likely. And then if it ends up being green-blue splashing the black card, there's a reasonably good chance that throughout the course of the draft I'll end up also splashing additional cards. Though again, I want to highlight that there's some incentive to get a little bit more conservative in your approach to splashing additional colors while drafting so that you can be more conservative in your approach to fixing so that you're not relying so heavily on spending three mana to make your mana work. Trying to minimize the amount that you're forced to play Replicating Ring and Glittering Frost. Though I'll note that I think that there might be a particular exception for Glittering Frost where I think that card is still pretty good if you have multiple Sculptor of Winters in your deck. I don't have access to uh, sufficiently granular data to prove that, but uh, I would be surprised if it's not the case that uh, Sculptor of Winter goes a long way to forgiving Glittering Frost and allowing you to play it without much of a hit to your win rate, or well, improving your win rate if you have a sufficient number of Sculptors in good late game. Now moving on to uh, talking about the potential archetype that I haven't discussed yet, which is really focusing on blue-green. Not necessarily splashing or multicolor, but just like, I am going to be a blue and green deck. And as far as methodology goes here, I want to take a step back, make a little bit more of a meta-statement about using data um, and address uh, concerns that were uh, brought to my attention by uh, listeners who I won't name but who might edit the podcast about the nature of using data to drive my analysis and concerns that when I discussed red blue specifically, it felt like I was kind of just like reciting the data and being like, and that's what's going on here in a way that could make it seem like there were fewer of my own thoughts involved in processing that. And so I want to explain that what was happening there is two different things. First, I kind of wanted to highlight and explain how to use the data to examine archetypes by leaning into doing that there. And also, it was an archetype that lent itself particularly well to doing that because blue and red is really, really straightforward in terms of what the cards tell you to do. I think that that's much less the case in blue-green and looking at what you can do in this archetype and how to talk about what's strong, if you just sort blue and green cards by the best win rates and try to figure out what the deck does, it paints a much less clear picture. And so this is a spot where 
I think a lot of uh, kind of interpretation and analysis and independent theory is needed where in blue-red, because the cards have such a clear mechanical focus, there's really just like one obvious way to build the deck. You can just kind of lean on the data more broadly and it'll tell you what to do. In blue-green, I think uh, the cards are a little bit more open-ended and point to a lot of different possible strategies. It's a lot harder to parse. So as to where that leaves us in blue-green specifically, the first thing that you'll notice if you do try to look at the data and ask the data what cards to play in blue-green is that even if you filter for looking only at blue and green decks, you'll see that a lot of the most successful cards are not blue or green. The way that 17 land, and this again, to specify for anyone who isn't super familiar with my methodology, anytime I'm talking about data, I'm talking about using 17lands.com and going over the data that they've collected from Marina users that use their software. And so when 17 lands uh, aggregates its data by deck, it counts any deck that plays up to three cards as of a color as splashing that color rather than playing that color. And so if you tell it that you want to see blue and green decks, it'll show you any deck that plays more than three blue and green cards and less than four cards of any other color which means that you'll see win rates for not blue and green cards in blue and green decks. And so when we look at the win rates for like commons in blue and green, Sarf's Packmate and Ravenous Lindworm are at the top. Going down from there, it's just a lot of removal spells in any color, uh, as long as we're, n we're not talking about black, I guess, broadly, although Priest of the Haunted Edge has pre pretty reasonable stats. Squash... Demon Bolt, Bound in Gold, Iron Verdict. These cards all have really good stats in blue-green. And it's interesting because like a lot of these cards, I think aren't that impressive in their colors. Like I'm not super excited about playing Bound in Gold in my white decks. I don't mean it's bad. It's just not exceptional to me. It's, a, it's, it's fine. When you look at just blue and green's prioritization of commons, it's just like, oh, apparently I'm just supposed to find and put removal from any color in my deck. I don't think that it's the case that you can just blindly prioritize taking every removal spell and put all of them in your deck when you're drafting blue and green, because you do still have to pay attention to like how you're going to cast these and making your mana work and stuff. I think that what's suggested there is that you should find a color to splash and prioritize splashing removal. And the reason that removal is so much more important in blue-green than it is in these other archetypes is that blue-green is just going to play longer games than they are. There's really no way around it. Uh, the creatures that are available to you in blue and green are just not very aggressive. Rather than seeing a bunch of creatures with abilities like flying and haste and first strike and a lot of power for their casting cost uh, for one and two and three mana, you're going to see cards with much higher toughness than power and or lacking evasion and or... Uh, generating mana or doing something that like isn't primarily focused on killing your opponent. It's generally focused on making the game go longer or letting you cast more spells. That means that on average, any blue and green deck is looking, is expecting or hoping to play longer games than most white red decks, for example. 
anytime you're planning to play longer games, you're giving your opponent more time to find and cast and resolve their bombs, and you're giving those bombs more time to do whatever it is they do. So if you're playing a blue and green deck, uh, if your opponent casts something like Spella or Draugr Necromancer or uh, whatever, whatever random rare they happen to have, you're much more likely to lose to it if you can't kill it than in like a white and red deck where you can just attack and cast a run amok or Kaya's onslaught and kill your opponent. And blue and green don't have a lot of removal, or the removal they have isn't great or has some kind of restriction where it's not going to uh, correctly answer everything that you might need to answer. Like if your opponent plays a Dragon Necromancer and you have Bind the Monster, you haven't really fixed the problem. It's, it's possible to win without a splash, but you're much, much, much more incentivized to prioritize removal in basically any kind of blue and green strategy you can put together than you are in other strategies that are going to be more aggressive and more ending the game quickly. Because I don't want to make it sound like blue and green can't be proactive, but they're going to take a little bit longer to do their thing. When we're looking at blue-green that is minimally or potentially not trying to splash, when we're really, when the, our deck is really about the blue and green cards, fundamentally what I expect that we're trying to do anytime we're in that spot is play some early creatures to stay alive, and then play uh, Sarlf's Packmate to make sure that we hit our land drops and do something early, and then kind of take over the game with specifically Bergstrider and Ravenous Lindworm. Uh, Bergstrider to kind of change the flow of the game, shift the momentum, stop your opponent from attacking you, give yourself good attacks, and Ravenous Lindworm. Both of these cards, like your opponent's attacking you, and these buy you more time while putting a large creature on the battlefield, putting you in a spot where the extra, like, time that they've given you from their interest battlefield abilities gives you enough of a life buffer that you can afford to attack without dying to your opponent's counterattacks. So I'm expecting that you're going to play stuff like Mistwalker and Notbold Recluse as your three drops that aren't necessarily great at killing your opponent, but they're going to be pretty good at making the game last a couple more turns so that you can start generating this kind of like parade of Bergstriders and Ravenous Lindworms, where because you have uh, access to both Morad of the Frost and or Mirror Lake, once you play some Bergstriders and Ravenous Lindworms, you can start copying them and really overwhelm your opponent with huge stuff. Usually, that will be sufficient if you've executed your game plan and not fallen behind and started playing a bunch of these things to win the game from there. Sometimes your opponent is also doing powerful stuff. The best card in blue and green that's gonna let you really turn around a game around and uh, like close a game, actually kill your opponent with these big things when they're also doing powerful stuff is actually run ashore. This situation where you just fill the board with huge things and then at some point use run ashore to clear two of your opponent's largest creatures and then just start crashing with your uh, entire team of huge creatures is kind of like the go-to way to end a game in blue-green. So in previous formats, um, cards like Sleep, uh, which taps all of your opponent's creatures and they don't untap, or Overrun, have been, which uh, gives all of your creatures plus three, plus three, and trample. Some kind of like big effect that breaks a board stall has been pretty important 
to a lot of like successful strategies with blue and green because they're so good between blues flyers and greens large ground creatures and like spiders or whatever in green in general blue and green is pretty good at gumming up the game but not so good at ending the game and so it's often the case across limited formats that blue and green is looking for some kind of way to break the stalemate that the strategy kind of inevitably creates and run ashore i think is like the best approximation of that effect in this format the other way that you can do it is flyers if your opponent doesn't have the ability to stop to stop flyers or snow activations specifically avalanche caller would be the best option uh, you get just get a bunch of lands in play and then suddenly there are way more four fours than your opponent can deal with a step down from that would be ice hide troll where you just send in this troll every turn you get you know four snow lands into play and now your opponent like anything they block it with it it'll just use its ability and kill the creature and stay alive and grind them down with an ice hide troll. And then a step down from that would be the Yeti, which is a card that uh, isn't good. I don't recommend playing it if you can help it, but is functionally, fundamentally a card that can end a game in blue-green if you don't have a, a way to do that. Frost Peak Yeti. That kind of speaks to one kind of twist on what I'm talking about with blue-green, that is certainly something that I would be looking to do if I were to draft this kind of straight blue-green doing blue-green things. I'm not really prioritizing fixing, I'm not splashing, I'm just trying to like attack you with big creatures. When I say that the deck is about Bergstrider and Ravenous Lindworm, one might think, oh, so I'm supposed to use three mana ramp spells to cast my five and six drops. But as I've mentioned, those three mana ramp spells have pretty disastrous win rates, just according to the 17 lands data which makes me think that you can't actually afford, for the most part, to take turn three off to start doing that, maybe unless you have a really high density of Bergstriders and Lindworms. But my preferred approach would be to, on turn three, prioritize casting Raider's Carve. On turn four, to try to uh, maximize my access to Sarlf's Packmate, Augury Raven, Elderleaf Mentor, uh, not Bold Recluse, Horizon Seeker, and any three power creature for three or four mana to crew the carve. And if I have a lot of four mana creatures that crew the carve, th that's fine. If I have a lot of, <laughs> then nothing special. But if I have a lot of three mana creatures that crew the carve, now I'm planning to play carve on three and a three mana creature on four and to crew the carve which notably means that I'm going to have one extra mana on turn four. And if it's the case that my deck is drafted in such a way that a good portion of the time I'm going to play a three mana spell on turn three and a four mana spell on turn four, then I can use that one extra mana for a tempo play, um, specifically a trick, specifically either Snakeskin Veil or the 1-2 flash that gives something minus 2 power, the intruder. way that I'm going to be sure that this is going to work out well repeatedly is you're not going to generally want to play more than about 2 Raiders carves, but if your other 3 mana plays are cards like Horizon Seeker and Not Vold Recluse, those are cards that are very good to attack with it when and expect that your opponent's going to block because your opponent generally doesn't want to let you hit them with a 4-2 or a 3-2 that boasts and so either 
you'll draw a carve, and then you'll play a creature that can crew the carve, because all those creatures crew the carve, and then you'll attack, and then you'll have a trick if your opponent tries to block or crew the carve. Or you won't draw the carve, and instead on turn three, you'll play a creature that your opponent wants to block, and on turn four, you'll attack, and you'll have a good two-spell turn where you play a trick on the creature that attacked, and then you also play another three-drop. That's going to be a really good way to get ahead. This deck can potentially be built in a way where it just has a lot of threes and then one-mana tricks and no fours, or where it has a smooth curves of threes into fours. Either, either of those builds is fine. Then the Raider's Carve, or if you don't Raider's Carve, Horizon Seeker will both allow you to hit additional land drops to cast your Bergstriders and Ravenous Lindworms to get into that late game that I was talking about, but also while having been more aggressive early, gotten your opponent's life total lower so that you're in a better position to like win the race with your Bergstriders and Ravenous Lindworms. The alternative approach is basically, instead of prioritizing three power two drops, you prioritize not three power three drops. The, the alternate strategy that's effective is instead of playing those things, you're playing Mistwalkers and Icehide Trolls and maybe like Elven Bows. And now you have a lot of three mana plays that don't attack well, but do block well. And they don't like crew Raider's Carve, so you're not playing Raider's Carve. And now your deck is just fundamentally more defensive. And now from the beginning, you're going to be more about not falling behind, establishing control, and then you know finishing your opponent off in the much later game by attacking and putting mana into these like Mistwalkers and Icehide Trolls. And you're gonna be more about inevitability and less about these kind of big tempo swings that you're capable of on turn four or this kind of like smooth parade of overstated creatures. Those are just like hypothetical, like different packages to build around in like the three and four mana slot. You know, this is kind of like the discussion in Red White where you want to pay attention to like, am I a tricks package or an equipment package? Or like, how am I getting these things to work together? And this is more about what is my game plan? How do my like three and four mana plays contribute to that? Because what you do on turn three has such a pivotal impact on the game that you really want to make sure that you're strategically maximizing that and that it's all contributing toward some meaningful thing that you're trying to do. So paying attention to the way that like Mistwalker and Icehide Troll play really well together, where they both are better defensively. Plan of inevitability, where you're going to invest mana into these defensive creatures to end the game, as compared to the more like tempo trick heavy version that you end up playing if you have creatures with more power rather than more toughness. And that, this is where you can't just look at the cards win rates and just, you know, go down the list and say like, yeah, play all the best cards because you want to think about, you know, creating some kind of like cohesive game plan and using these cards in a way where they're going to support each other towards some kind of larger strategy. And then another thing to highlight here is, of course, as I mentioned, all of these strategies are going to take more time to end the game than most other colors will not necessarily than like white black wood or whatever, but more than uh, kind of like the default decks in this format. And so because of that, you want to be able to, as I talked about, have answers to your opponent's creatures. And so if you're not splashing, you want to really prioritize Struggle for Scamfar and Blizzard Brawl. Blizzard Brawl is a card with really good stats that I personally am not very into. I've had mostly bad experiences with it, 
but definitely believe that it is absolutely where you want to be in almost any blue-green deck. You're going to be very likely to be able to take advantage of the snow thing, you're going to have a lot of large creatures, and you're going to be really, really interested in both a one-mana play that can change tempo significantly and a card that can actually kill your opponent's creatures. Blizzard Brawl is definitely a card to really highly prioritize if you're playing any of the less splash-intensive versions of blue and green. So obviously, for the versions of blue and green that are splashing more, all of this, like, well, how are my creatures lining up question falls to the background a little bit, and it becomes more about, okay, well, I'm playing powerful stuff, and I have removal spells, and now I'm playing just like a normal game of magic, where I'm in a slightly controlling role, presumably. It's when you're really trying to just lean on blue and green that I think it's really important to, like, maximize making sure that your creature's stats are lining up well and that you're making these good tempo plays because that's what you have going for you. Like if you're playing blue and green, the advantage of green is that you have creatures with good stats. The advantage of blue is you have good tempo plays. So if you're not really looking to maximize that, then I don't know what you're doing and I don't know how you're going to go about winning games. Behold the Multiverse, I would point out as a card that when you look at the stats, it has pretty good stats in blue and green, but I suspect that that's because it's being paired. It's being played in these blue and green decks that are splash and removal. I think it's really good. I think how good Behold the Multiverse is is largely a function of how much removal you have and how well positioned your deck is to give you time to do it. And I think that uh, Behold the Multiverse in general is going to play much better in the blue-green splashes deck than the straight blue-green deck where the straight blue-green deck, I think, really, really, really wants to prioritize uh, impacting the battlefield, playing a really tempo-oriented game, and is much less interested in spending mana drawing cards. Obviously, as you play more colors, the scrying to fix your mana is better, um, finding your bombs becomes more important, and you have a lot more one-for-one -one trades because you get to prioritize removal, and then uh, some card advantage as a way to break the symmetry on your one-for-one -one trades becomes really valuable. That's the big picture uh, situation on what's going on in blue-green. One last note, uh, don't play equipment in blue-green. The creatures should be big enough on their own. How strong equipment is, is always going to be a function of like how much of the strength of your creatures relatively you're increasing. Exceptions, obviously, for equipment that is creatures, uh, Elven Bow and... Uh, Giant's Amulet are both good cards, though I'll note the Giant's Amulet has relatively unimpressive stats, um, probably across the board, certainly in blue-green. Um, what it's doing is pretty redundant with what you're already doing, and it's not uh, changing the tide of the game that Awaitheberg Strider is, it's more in the like Grizzled Outrider type space. Um, and it actually has win rates really, really comparable to Gri Grizzled Outrider. It is slightly better though, uh, somewhat obviously. But yeah, you're not looking to play Goldvein Picks and Raven's Wings and stuff for the most part. You want your creatures to be able to stand on their own. And the fact that you're not playing equipment means that you are also not playing runes. I um, would say that I somewhat pathologically overvalue runes. If you've been watching my drafts, you uh, probably know that I value runes a lot. I, after looking into uh, more detail, realized that basically every rune is directly related to how much equipment you're playing. It's not like runes are fine. You actively, strongly do not want runes if you don't have equipment in your deck. I would say that you should generally avoid playing Rune of Might 
in a blue-green deck because it's only like worth the mana in the card and setting up a situation where you have to safely resolve it and everything when you have like when you're gonna be putting it on equipment a reasonable portion of the time. The exception obviously would be if you have a good amount of elven bows and giant amulets that are like pieces of equipment that you actually want to play, then it would make sense to play runes to augment those cards. If you suspect that you're blue-green, you don't want to prioritize taking runes because you would prefer not to play them if you don't have equipment and you shouldn't expect to have a lot of equipment. That's, I think, all of the uh, notes that I have about kind of what's going on in this archetype, updating previous stuff, notes on kind of specific cards. I'm going to open it up to questions from chat before I do that or while I'm giving chat time to give me some questions. I want to take a moment once again to thank everyone who's chosen to support the podcast on patreon.com. If you like what I'm doing here, I would uh, request that you at least take a look at the Patreon, Patreon, um, patreon.com slash drafting archetypes and see if the uh, perks that we offer are appealing to you. Check it out. Think about whether it's worth contributing to the efforts here. Obviously, I put an unbelievable amount of time into making sure I understand the format, uh, researching everything. This podcast has genuinely become kind of like a full-time uh, endeavor for me. Really appreciate any support that uh, anyone chooses to put into the uh, project. Now, uh, questions from chat. First question. I see blue-green is a version of blue-red that didn't get any spellas or red removal. Is that too far off? Well, so... Svella wouldn't be particularly related to blue-red, right? That'd be blue-green. Okay, so, sorry, This uh, there's a correction here. I uh, see blue-green as a version of uh, green-red that didn't get Svella's or red removal. Is that too far off? So basically, the idea here is we started in green, and we were expecting that we would end up taking red cards, but because the red cards are high picks we found that we were in a spot where red wasn't very open and then blue happened to be open and we transitioned out of uh, green red into blue green. I would say that's not necessarily the way that it's going to go every draft, but I definitely respect and would encourage for the most part an approach like that. I play green an enormous portion of my drafts and I generally try to avoid drafting blue. So it makes sense that I would start out expecting to be green-red, and then if I get cut, see blue-green as kind of like an off-road or pivot out of that. And there are certainly a lot of decks where I end up in a spot where, regardless of how the draft went exactly in the first three picks, I find myself in a spot where, okay, I'm some combination of blue-red and green, and I don't know exactly what color, what combination yet, and then based on what's open, I am going to figure out if I'm all of these or abandoning some cards in one of those colors or another and finding a spot. As far as navigating the draft early, I definitely think that that's like a likely approach and a pretty healthy way to approach it from the standpoint of like trying to position yourself into the best colors and then being aware of an off-road if that doesn't work out. It, it's certainly not too far off. Next question, can I talk a bit more about the difference between best of one and best of three data? Uh, I see a big difference when switching between the two. Unfortunately, my ability to talk about that is that essentially all of my research has been best of one, and everything I'm talking about is basically with with best of one in mind. 
When I stream, viewers have a preference for watching Best of One because they like uh, watching ranks change, I believe, and also because the competition at Mythic and Best of One is much stronger than the competition in Best of Three. I play better games when I play Best of One. But the result of that is that all of the research that's useful for me to do personally and that I've been doing is Best of One. I think Best of Three is a fantastic format. I fully encourage anyone who enjoys playing Best of Three to do so. Unfortunately, I need to focus somewhere. Certainly, uh, I would be interested in feedback if people want me to dive deeper into uh, Best of Three to be able to speak to both. I'd be happy to do that if there's interest. For the most part, I assume that most players at this stage are in a place where because there's not a lot of uh, paper magic being played, I think most drafters are likely prioritizing the latter in a quest to Mythic, and my own play certainly prioritizes Best of One. So that's uh, everything that I sh said currently should be viewed from in the context of Best of One. Next question, how does Jasparo Sentinel do in this archetype? Uh, since there's not so many cheap creatures, is it less good than in other archetypes? I hate to admit it, but yes, certainly in some versions of focused blue-green, it's less good, especially since, as I mentioned, you want to avoid equipment. And part of why I like Jaspara Sentinel is that the uh, small body that you have happens to be able to pick up equipment pretty well. And then obviously the fact that you generally want to play fewer one and two mana creatures makes it a little bit weaker. I discussed at length three and four mana creatures in the podcast and didn't give as much attention to one and two mana creatures. That's not to say that you don't want one and two drops in your deck, uh, just that they're kind of more interchangeable and affect your strategy a lot less. Sculptor of Winter is the notable standout. It's much better than the other cheap cards that you can play in this archetype if you have enough snowlands to use it. Uh, Masked Vandal is the other really good card, although it's not so great to play on turn two. And then you're looking at cards like Carful Harbinger and Guardian Gladewalker to round out your two drops. Note, this lack of strong commons at two uh, is part of what pushes cards like Avalanche Caller and uh, Finn the Fangbearer to be super, super, super desirable. If you can get powerful two drops, it's a huge upgrade to the strength of your deck in blue-green, and you really, really want to look for those cards. I mean, especially both of them, um, but especially, you know, somewhat subtly, like more exceptionally, Finn. Though Finn is just underrated and fantastic in general. It's a card that I think, you know, isn't quite flashy enough to get the respect it deserves, but it's incredible. But especially in a deck that wants a bunch of fight spells and everything um, and doesn't have other good two drops, Finn is absolutely, you know, game-changing. Super, super high-priority uncommon. But yeah, if you find that you're low on two drops, that would be a reason to value Sentinel less. If you're low on supporting one drops, if you're low on equipment, all of those are reasons to value Sentinel a little bit less. That said, if you're splashing, it's a reasonable, it's a reason to value Jaspara Sentinel more. So I think that if you're straight blue-green, it's a reason to like value Sentinel a little lower. If you're multicolor, you're still probably going to want them. It's still a good enough card that I'm more likely to play it than cut it, but it is not as high a priority for me in blue-green as it is in like green-white or green-black or even green-red, certainly. Close to how it is in green-red, uh, much lower than uh, green-white and green-black. Just a note about the uh, three-drop into three-drop plan that I mentioned, uh, playing really well with both Blizzard Brawl and 
struggle for Skemfar if you're not doing anything on turn two. Foretell struggle and then play a three drop and then struggle your three drop killing something and play another three drop is a good way to like make up for the loss, the tempo loss of not having good two drops. And, you know, I did just talk about how there's kind of like a dearth of quality two drops in blue-green, and certainly there's an expectation that a lot of what's happening in blue-green, similar to in blue-red, is that you're making up for that by spending turn two for telling and then spending uh, turn three or four casting that foretold card to make up some of the tempo. It's dangerous to lean too heavily on that if your foretold card is something like Behold the Multiverse that doesn't pick up the tempo, but if it's Struggle for Skemfire and you're going to be able to take advantage of uh, that two-spell turn pretty soon to reestablish control of the board, or if it's something like a Packmate, then it's a really good way to use your turn two in a deck that doesn't have really strong two drops. Next question is slightly off topic. Is green the best color for limited, or are there... Is there any hope for white and black? Is it considerably better to force green? So, no. I, I, I mean, I do think green is the best color, but I don't think green is far ahead of red and white. I think, for me, the strength of the colors is green, then red, then white, then blue, then black. Green, red, and white are all fairly close, and an argument could be made that red is comparable or better than green, or that white is better than red. Maybe even one could argue that white's better than green, but to me, I believe it's the order that I said overall. Next question is, if you're headed to blue-green early and you see a glimpse of the cosmos, can you be confident that you'll be able to support it with shapeshifters coming from green? Yes, absolutely. A uh, glimpse of the cosmos is absolutely a premium uncommon in blue-green. It has win rates just below Path the World Tree and above Finn the Fangbearer and Blizzard Brawl and Rootless You. You should absolutely prioritize it in blue-green. You're going to be very highly prioritizing Bergstriders and likely Mistwalkers and Guardian Gladewalkers among your better two drops, as is, and so is Masked Vandal. I would say that it's you should expect it to be very easy to use Glimpse the Cosmos and should prioritize it extremely highly. All right, the next question is about Ruined Crown, whether it should be avoided in blue and green. Since I mentioned that the strong uncommon equipment can be played and the common equipment should be avoided. So this question is interesting because Ruined Crown is a really powerful card and does actually have good stats in blue and green. It actually ranks above Elven Bow behind Rootless U. But I do think that it's likely weaker in blue and green than it is in a lot of the other color combinations. Also, I noticed that Rune of Sustenance in particular has a very good win rate in blue green while the other runes don't. A lot of granularity to the data that I don't have. And so I don't know if specifically players know to only prioritize Rune Crown in blue-green if they have Rune of Sustenance, or if people are playing Rune Crown and like splashing Rune of Speed and somehow it's working out for them. I would suspect that you want to be cautious when playing it and that you want to make sure that you're playing a deck with a good number of cheap creatures and a deck that doesn't have... Um, an overabundance of expensive plays. You need to remember that Ruined Crown is an expensive card to use. If you're uh, pretty top-heavy or have a lot of card draw or a lot of mana sinks, it's best to stay away from. But it is really powerful, especially if you have Rune that is a good fit for your deck. So in particular, I think if you can assemble the combination of Ruined Crown and a Splashed Rune of Sustenance, it'll play super, super well with your large blue and green creatures, and it'll be a really powerful card in that deck. But I don't think 
that you should prioritize rune crown for like a rune of speed or whether i want to prioritize rune crown with rune of mortality for example is really going to depend on the exact composition of my deck if i have more like mist walkers that sounds kind of appealing but if i have more not bold recluses it's not really getting me anywhere so i suspect that rune crown is a maybe with high upsides that you want to be pretty careful about but it's hard to point concretely to the data about that. And as far as leaning on my own experience, I, like everyone else, have played blue-green fairly rarely because it's so common for decks that are in this space to want to splash and often to be splashing blue. Blue-green is not the least played color combination because people know better than to play blue and black. Uh, I think it's like the second least played color combination after that. Yeah, that that's that's the best I can guess about uh, exactly how to think about blue green about rune crown here. Um, the next question is about blue and green having a lot of toughness in general and being able to like set up a kind of defensive board state, which I talked about, and then asking if there's anything like missing or that this set isn't doing as well as other sets that make this strategy not work as well. I mentioned that in other sets, blue and green can often lean pretty heavily on cards like Sleep or Overrun, some kind of like uncommon that's sole purpose is to break a board stall, and that Run Ashore was this format's approximation of that, but Run Ashore isn't as powerful of an effect. The card that I've found that actually has an effect most like that is actually Carter, which I've been using to great effect to capitalize on board stalls that I've established in my uh, green decks, but it's pretty hard to splash Carter in like a dedicated blue-green deck. So I would say as far as like what it is exactly that's missing from this format that makes blue and green struggle to play that particular plan, it's a lack of uncommon I win once there's a large board that I've managed to gum up type card. Uh, obviously at Mythic, Coma does precisely that, and some versions of blue-green might be able to do something similar with Cyclone Summoner, but the fact that you have to rely on rares and mythics to like really break a game open once you've established a stall makes it a little bit harder for blue and green to execute that kind of plan. All of the stuff that you're doing is just like incrementally adding another big creature to the board rather than having something that really blows the game open. Next question is about using Raven Wings for that effect, generating a board stall and then using Raven Wings as a finisher. I did advocate against using Raven Wings. I do think that the reason that I'm not into Raven Wings is it costs a lot of mana to use and you have other access to flyers. If your specific deck doesn't have flyers and doesn't have like a plan to win the game, you know, what I talked about is that you want some kind of plan to win the game. You want like run ashore and big creatures or ice side troll or something. If you don't have anything else, I do think that Raven Wings can be a way to do that, especially if you're like lacking bombs or whatever. Be careful about uh, how you're expecting to spend mana over the course of the game and whether you're gonna have time to play it. Thinking of it as like a finisher versus like imagining this is somehow gonna be useful in defense or whatever. Uh, I, I think that it is a low priority backdoor way to do that if you can't find anything better. The next question is, does having a bomb like Coma, which I assume to mean precisely Coma, uh, make me more likely to want to stay straight blue-green because I have that uh, crazy top-end effect. So the thing about having Coma is that it means you're very, very comfortable playing long games. And when you're very comfortable playing long games, 
you're running into the problem that I talked about where if your removal can't answer your opponent's bombs, they might take over the game if you can't find your coma. Obviously, coma will be able to go over the top of almost any other bomb. If you have a coma and you're not splashing removal, you could still just like lose to Svela or Dragon Necromancer or something while you're trying to find your coma. And so given that you have coma and you're drafting your deck around the fact that you have coma, now you're drafting with, well, I have ultimate inevitability. So like, why would you not want to be able to like answer your opponent's threat to that inevitability? So I think at that point you want to prioritize removal. Now, coma does have a very restrictive casting cost that can potentially make it hard to splash removal. And so if you can find a way to reliably use Struggle for Skemfar and Blizzard Brawl to function as your removal, it might be nice to minimize the amount that you have to splash other colors for removal. Like the fact that I can, that I have like this ultimate inevitability doesn't mean I want to like lean exclusively on drawing it. I still want to remember that, well, if I'm trying to play a long game, that's more reason that I'm going to need to answer my opponent's cards. Uh, the next question is, does the hand smoother in best of one and the snowball nature of games that this results in uh, make it harder for blue-green to win? Absolutely. I haven't looked at the data, but I would expect that blue-green likely fares better in best of three. There are things that I could imagine making that not the case, like the fact that blue and green is likely prioritizing lands with its picks and therefore having a smaller sideboard. But I definitely think that the deck that is a little bit weaker in the early game and stronger in the late game is going to fare less well in the format where everyone curves out m more often. All right, so I believe that that uh, wraps up the questions from the audience. If you are not currently in the audience on Twitch and uh, you're interested in asking questions in the future or watching the live recording, um, tune in at 8 p.m. Central on twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black, where I record this podcast live every week. Also, typically, uh, when I record, as tonight, I uh, will hop into doing some drafts afterwards. If you're interested in seeing all of these theories put to practice, um, then if you tune in and stick around, you can uh, watch me draft. Also, for anyone who's unaware and listening to this, I am a regular streamer. I uh, stream every single night, generally at night, uh, central time. I stream until 3 a.m., starting at various times, different days throughout the week. But I do stream almost exclusively limited, and I stream every night. So if you're uh, interested in more limited content from me, be sure to check out that stream if you weren't aware that that was an option. Thank you once again, everyone, for listening. And we will be back with something that probably isn't Kaldheim next week. So uh, I believe I've wrapped up my content on this really great draft format. I hope everyone has learned a lot about both how to draft this format and a lot of lessons to apply to limited in general. So that's very much my goal for this program. I am looking forward to diving into Strixhaven as soon as we have enough cards to do so. Uh, thank you once again, everyone, and goodbye for now.